All right, let's go ahead and find our seats. To those of you here in the worship center, to those out in the gymnasium, and for those of you at home, get settled. If you could grab a Bible, that would be most helpful as you follow along. Make sure I'm not espousing things that I shouldn't. You'll also be less bored. We are continuing our series through the book of Daniel. Today we're in chapter 5, so you're going to need to be in Daniel chapter 5 momentarily. In the summer of 1812, against repeated advice not to go forward, Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Russia, eager to expand his French empire. The Russian army set fire to Moscow when he finally arrived in September and retreated and retreated and retreated and Napoleon gave chase. A harsh and early Russian winter came and Napoleon and his men, desperate to return to France, found themselves trudging through knee-deep snow. On the night of November 8th, almost 10,000 men and horses of the French army froze to death. Napoleon's grand army of more than 450,000 men had fewer than 40,000 men as they crossed the Berezina River in November of 1812. And this signaled the beginning of the end for the little corporal. He never expanded his influence after this. 129 years later, in the summer of 1941, Adolf Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, the largest invasion force in the history of the planet and moved on his former ally, the Soviet Union. Eventually in the fall, rain and snow turned the roads and countryside into a mucky mess. German tanks could not easily navigate the mud, and the offensive slowed to a crawl. The German army was unprepared to fight in the bitter cold of the Russian winter. Deep snow hindered the movement of equipment, and the weather turned the vaunted Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, into a non-factor. The German army lost, get this, more than 830,000 men in the months-long futile attempt to sack Moscow, diverting men, equipment, and momentum away from other closer enemies. In his lust for, lust for living space for his master race, Hitler did on a massive scale what Napoleon had done before him and what so many human beings continue to do, fail to learn from the past. He ignored Napoleon's famous mistake and repeated it. The philosopher Hegel once said, the only thing we learn from history is that we have learned nothing from history. And we laugh at these things, and then we turn on the news, examine our own hearts, and see the patterns of sin in our own lives and the lives of our family members and those around us. Today, in God's Word, we're going to see the same massive mistake made by the last Babylonian ruler, and faithful Daniel's wise response in the midst of us, showing us who God is and how we should view him. And, and I think it's hard for us to look at these massive, vast, history-making events and try to figure out how that applies to little old me. But the seed of what happens in those massive world events is in all of our hearts, and we can see it if we're willing to stop and to look. If you're in Daniel chapter 5, Please follow along as I read the entire chapter so we can get a sense of the story. The sequel to Daniel chapter 4, which Pastor Ron preached so well last week. Daniel chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. 
The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writings or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said, Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored." Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, and parsing. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this today. Father, we thank you for your word, that we have it, that we can read it, that we can hear the amplified system across various rooms and homes across Orange County and the world, that your word can be heard and understood. We pray that your spirit would give us insight and understanding today, that we might see what you have for us in your holy word, that we might put away our idols, that we might put away our blasphemy, that we would turn to you, the one only true God, and that we would live for you in a world that needs to know light and wisdom and understanding. God, may we be a people who reflect that light in a dark, dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. My first memory of this story in the book of Daniel is the Hanna-Barbera cartoons from the 1980s. I can vividly see them in my mind when I see many Bible stories. 
um, the, the three time-traveling friends from uh, modern times. The 80s are still modern. Um, going back to biblical events, and I specifically remember this one with Belshazzar and the, the party and the handwriting on the wall. It's kind of hard to divorce those pictures from my mind when I'm reading um, the scriptures. But this story is, is one that um, we teach our children, that we grow up learning. In fact, this is a story that basically almost every person who speaks English knows a phrase from. Right? Because when something's going down, they can see that the writing is on the wall. Right? That that's, comes from this, this story. The writing is on the wall. Well, what, what do we see in something that may be so familiar to us that we miss out on what God has for us in this passage? I want you to, to note that God sovereignly governs the kingdoms of men and harshly judges willful arrogance and blasphemous idolatry while faithful servants of god gain a reputation that glorifies him we've seen daniel throughout the first four chapters of this book interacting with king nebuchadnezzar and for the first time now we get a substantial fast forward and we move on past uh nebuchadnezzar to belshazzar so i want to give you some background some context to help you understand uh, what's going on here in this passage is a lot of intriguing background things that can kind of give us some insights. There's um, some, a lot of agreement, a lot of disagreement about some of the, the historical events here. And it needs to be said that the scriptures here are, are laser focused on the why. Why is this happening? What's going on in this story? Um, not as focused on the how. So there's a lot of details that we would love to have that history can give us that help us understand, but let's be clear, um, we can understand what God has for us here in this passage because of what's in God's word. But for some background, Daniel chapter 4, you remember last week, Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a cow-like thing, boanthropy. He had a mental illness for a time, and he was humbled. And in fact, chapter 4 is written partially in the first person from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar confesses the Most High God, and it seems writes a letter that is um, at least kept in the archives, if not sent around. Now, when we get to chapter 5, the very first word of chapter 5 is king. So there's like no introduction, just bam, next thing. We're moving to the next story. And this is about 23 years later. It's now 539 BC. Daniel is an old man, very likely in his 80s. Um, and he uh, has, it seems, faded from the advisor scene, the advisory role that we've seen him have with King Nebuchadnezzar. What's interesting is that we know from history so much about this event that we know it actually happened on October 12th, 539 BC. So we're coming up on the 2,500-something anniversary of this event. Okay? Now, Nebuchadnezzar had died um, in 562. So Nebuchadnezzar was the great king, the, the headlining king of the world, of the Babylonian Empire. And after him, there was a, an assortment of kings and sons and son-in-laws. Um, there's, there's some confusion on um, how that got here. But we know that Belshazzar is called king here. And you know, um, in the last 150 years, a lot of critical scholars said, well, we don't have any archaeological evidence. We don't have any evidence that a Belshazzar ever existed. This is ridiculous. It sounds a whole lot like Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. It's just two letters different. So this is probably just a made-up thing. Well, until the late 19th century and onward, as we began to find things in Iraq and places around Iran as well, Beginning in 1914, 37 separate archival texts have been discovered documenting the existence of Belshazzar as crown prince. Prior to that, the only known existence of a man named Belshazzar was in God's word passed down for generations and generations. God's word is accurate. It is trustworthy. We know that what it says is true. Now, Belshazzar, later on in the passage, tells Daniel or anybody that can interpret the dream that they get some rewards. And one of those rewards is to be the third in the kingdom. That's a really odd statement coming from the king, unless we understand that Belshazzar was actually not the king of Babylon. He was what's called a co-regent with his father. His father, Nabonidus, was the actual king, um, and he had a lot of different views and 
basically took off and went on a retreat in the desert, closer to Israel, actually, in what's now Saudi Arabia, and left Belshazzar to run things in Babylon. He kind of ran things into the ground, and the Persian Empire was on the rise. And we can see the, the prophecies of Daniel from Daniel chapter 2 and the statue of different um, uh, precious metals coming true in just a brief history of this book. And so Belshazzar is introduced to us as king, and it's interesting that he says three times about the third ruler in the kingdom. So if you can do this, if you can uh, interpret what's on the wall, you'll be elevated to third in the land. Very interesting um, for us to note. Also, there's, a, there's been a lot of controversy over verse 2, where it said that Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's father, had uh, taken things from the temple in Jerusalem. And people say, well, Nebuchadnezzar is clearly not his father, so this is not true and can't be trustworthy. But we know that's not the case. We know that the word father in almost every culture is an elastic word. It can mean a lot of different things, everything from biological fatherhood to symbolic founder to simple ancestry. For example, in the scriptures, the son of David was a moniker for the kings of Judah, even if it was a great, 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 great grandson. He was known as the son of David. In fact, Jesus is given the name son of David in his time on earth. We sing a song. Father Abraham had many sons. How many sons did Father Abraham actually have? (laughs) He had many further down the line who weren't actually his children. Grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and us today. So father means that. George Washington is the father of the nation, right? Um, Friedrich Schleiermacher is the father of modern theology. You can find the the father of modern chemistry, the father of modern this and that. We find that all over the place. So we understand that father can mean predecessor. It can mean ancestor. And that's exactly what's meant here by calling Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father. Nebuchadnezzar was, was very likely Belshazzar's grandfather, because Belshazzar um, married into the line of Nebuchadnezzar. And so after there was some palace intrigue with previous kings, Belshazzar becomes king, and his father, grandfather, his predecessor, his ancestor, was Nebuchadnezzar. That's important for us to note because the first four chapters were focused on the relationship between Daniel and his friends and Nebuchadnezzar and the decisions that he makes regarding the Most High God. Now we've moved to Belshazzar, and chapter 5 is self-consciously a sequel to chapter 4. In the way that the book is constructed, it's very likely that chapters 2 and 7 are closely related because of their content, that chapters 3 and 6 are very closely related. Chapter 3 we talked about was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Chapter 6 next week, spoiler, Daniel in the lion's den. And then 4 and 5 right next to each other are very closely related and rely on each other. So when we get to chapter 5, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar make some stupid decisions and receive judgment from the Lord. We've seen him change his mind. We've seen him confess and humble himself. So what are we going to see with the grandson? That's what we come to here. And point number one in your notes, God does not take blasphemy and idolatry lightly. God does not take blasphemy and idolatry lightly. Blasphemy, what is that? Blasphemy in in our context is is usually in a a Muslim context uh, around the world where um, cartoons of Allah or Muhammad are made. And there's been actually an attack in France yesterday um, regarding this. Um, But there's blasphemy laws in certain countries today that mandate one religion and outlaw others. That's not exactly what we're talking about when we talk about blasphemy in the scriptures. Blasphemy is cursing God or showing contempt or even irreverence toward God and his ways. Blasphemy is cursing God or showing contempt or irreverence toward God and his ways. Idolatry, we can think of so many stories in the Old Testament about bowing down. We can think of the Ten Commandments about not having a graven image. Um, God, Yahweh, is not pictured in Israelite religion, which is totally opposite of all the religions around them. Remember the story of the, the Philistine god Dagon, and they put the Ark of the Covenant in front of him, and they come the next morning, and the idol's down on its face, and then they come in and put it back up, and the next day they come in, the idol's on its face, and its arms and head are chopped off. And, and we see that, that all of the surrounding cultures had visual uh, idolatry, that there were idols 
pictured in sculptures and in drawings and in art. Idolatry, though, goes further than that. It must start in the heart. Idolatry is trusting, serving, or giving worship to something or someone that is not God. Which is why we can be idolaters very easily, even if we don't have any statues set up in our home. The statues don't have to be in our home. They're in our hearts. And so we want to be very clear that God does not take blasphemy and idolatry lightly. And maybe our blasphemy and idolatry doesn't necessarily look like this, what we see here in chapter 5, but I would argue that as we look a little closer, it actually sometimes is not too far from it. You will notice in the first four verses of Daniel chapter 5 that wine and drinking are mentioned in every verse. The, the, the theme of the first four verses is the alcohol is flowing freely at this party. Everybody is partaking, and the king is leading the way. The king is leading the way in the drinking. It is, is very probable from the wording that by the time we get to verse 5, that the king is intoxicated, and probably many of the thousand that are in the room with him. This shows a, a lack of self-control. This shows an idolatry toward a created thing. Grapes are created by God and given to us as a good thing and abused when we misuse them. There's heavy drinking happening here. And it is in that time when there's heavy drinking, when there's a party going on, and we know from what happens at the end of the chapter and from historical context that there is an army parked outside of the city. And it is not their army. It is the army of the Medes and the Persians. Why in the world would you have a drinking party of all kinds of parties to have when there is a, an army outside the gates? Well, one of the reasons is because there's never been any gates like these gates. And Pastor Ron talked about this a little bit uh, last week, but these walls were thought to be impregnable. In fact, I thought about using the... Uh, titanic illustration to talk about how they thought about their idea of staying safe inside of babylon they had food stored up that would have lasted for years and years and years they thought that no one could get in and instead they're inside having a drinking party not to mention that a few days before belshazzar's father nabonidus had suffered a crushing defeat at the hands of cyrus and the persians just 50 miles away that's what we like to call stupid. This is what sin does to us. It makes us stupid. How many of you have actually committed a sin and said that was stupid? <laughs> Good, thank you for you honest folks. Yes, you said those actual words, maybe even seconds or minutes after you did it, because there was no logical reason to it. It was stupid. That is what sin and idolatry do to us. They are illogical, unreasonable acts against God. Now, the problem becomes even greater. Not only was the wine flowing, but the wine was being consumed from cups and goblets and vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, almost 70 years before, had taken from Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon. He put them in his temple to his god Marduk to say, basically, my god is better than your god, nana, nana, nana. Okay? And I put your stuff in my temple. My temple's better than your temple. And Nebuchadnezzar had the wisdom, at least, or maybe the luck, to not ever take those out, apparently, and to leave them in with his treasures. But Belshazzar, intoxicated, feeling perhaps desperate, perhaps this is somewhat of a uh, like a party to kind of get a pep rally to the people of Babylon. Yay, we're going to do it. We can beat them. Yes, we can. Let's get drunk. I don't know. They're, they're, they were doing something to get themselves out of the, the, the horror of the possible defeat at the hands of the Persians. And Belshazzar says, go get those vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem. I want to, I want to drink my good wine out of those vessels. This is not an accident. It is not necessarily because he didn't have any better things to drink out of. He is intentionally, insolently drinking out of the God Yahweh's cups. It is meant to be an affront to the Jewish God and perhaps the Jewish people. So, 
what happens? Well, the, the wine is flowing. The vessels are brought out. It's mentioned several times from the house of God in Jerusalem. And this is what's happening. While they are drinking, they are also praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That is intentionally in there to contrast with the king of heaven, the God of heaven, the Lord of heaven. Those are, those are terms that, that God is called in the book of Daniel, the most high God in contrast to the gods of these created substances. John Calvin said, Wonderful indeed was the stupidity which prepared a splendid banquet filled with delicacies while the city was besieged. This looks a, a lot like Ahasuerus' feast in Esther chapter 1. By profaning the holy things, Belshazzar is inviting God's judgment. And it comes in verse 5. And it comes immediately is the word that we see. Or so, some of the, the, the translations will, will talk about the, the then or now. It happened right away. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Now, we found this palace in ancient Babylon. It's been excavated, and there is plaster still there on the walls next to some of these beautifully decorated walls. And, and I don't know what you imagine or what you saw in a Hanna-Barbera cartoon or in a Bible storybook, but I went back and tried to read this and see what it would be like. What would it be like to be at a party, to look at a wall and to see a human hand writing on it? Did it appear? Did it appear on the wall? Like, was there like actual physical contact between a finger and the wall? Was it like some kind of like Harry Potter thing where there's like writing appearing on it? I, I don't know with the magic or, or the picture. I used to picture a massive hand Right, like some huge like Mickey Mouse finger like on the wall. Um, I don't know. I, I, it says a human hand, so maybe it's just a, a normal hand. But by the way, hands don't write. Right? Hands need a, 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 an instrument to write. What's interesting is that when the Jewish people received the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, it specifically says that God wrote them with his finger. Now we see that a hand appears and is writing on the plaster. And it says, opposite the lampstand. What does that mean? It means in the spotlight, where it could be seen. Now there's questions, and I had questions about this. Does only the king see it? Verse 5, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Is everybody just having too good a time? Is the king sectioned off a little bit from the party, which ancient kings tended to be? Um, did, how did this happen? But the king sees it, and the king immediately, I think, we can read into this, knows he messed up. Because these people were religious people. They were superstitious people. They believed in omens and magic. And they did believe that the gods spoke with people. And so he sees a, a, a hand. I don't know, is it disembodied? Is it just a hand? Is it cut off at the wrist? I don't know, how far down the arm does it go? I don't know. But there's a hand riding on the wall. And King Belshazzar knows this is not good. His color changed. I mean, he's drinking He's, he's in a party. The room's probably getting warm. He's probably pink and red, but the color drains from his face. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, which might be a nice way of saying he couldn't control himself anymore. And his knees knocked together. I mean, this is like cartoonish, right? And then it says the king called loudly, which is a very kind way of these translators to say the king kept on screaming. It's more of a continual, ah, help me, help me, help me, help me. He's, he's screaming, he's out of control, he's not acting like a king, and he's screaming for his enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now, we've seen this before. There's something supernatural, and the king calls for his advisors, but we've seen Nebuchadnezzar do this several times, so we kind of know the script, okay? If you've read the book, you go, okay, Daniel's coming soon. Daniel's, Daniel's coming soon. It's like you're watching a John Wayne movie and there's bad stuff happening and the music changes and there's a horse on the horizon and okay, here comes John Wayne, right? Here comes the good guy, okay? You know what's, you know what's happening. But before we get there, the king is freaked out and he says, if you can read this and show me its interpretation, I will give you purple clothing, chain of gold around his neck and you shall be third ruler in the kingdom. So they all come in. Now it's a contest. Right now, all these guys are in there. They're all looking at the wall. They're pushing each other to try to see what's on the wall. And now they're trying to read it and, and interpret it. All these magi, all these wise men. But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. When I read this at first, I wondered, why can't they read it? 
um, these are the educated ones. Why does it, is it just mean they couldn't interpret it? And so that's how it said. But it does say they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. <laughs> so when your wise men can't do it, Belshazzar's right response in verse 9 is to be greatly alarmed. His color changed further. I don't know if he's going green now. I don't know what's happening. But his lords were perplexed. They don't know what is happening. And I think, like, sometimes we have, or sometimes I have trouble coming up with applications for sermons sometimes. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this one. Here's, here's a real easy one. Like, don't mess around with God's stuff. Right? Like, it's not hard to see that what's happening here is a direct response to Belshazzar's insolence. But one of the commentators said, it's not ignorance, it's insolence. This is not an accident that Belshazzar did this. And so when the immediate response is a supernatural event, God is bringing his judgment. We do not profane holy things. And what does that mean? It means that we, we don't take lightly what God has called holy. Now, in, in our day, that is not an altar. That is not a, a box with cherubim on it. What is it? It's God's word and God's people. God's word and God's people. We don't profane those things. We need to take God's word and God's people seriously and not profane the sacred nature of what God is doing. We don't take lightly the name of God. Please stop throwing God's name around in whatever version you're doing it as something profane. We don't just toss God's name around as a cuss word. And I, I would think that would probably extend to a place that God made for the devil and his angels. When we say we had a hell of a time or that was a hell of a game, what are we talking about? We're talking about a place that God is judging human beings and angels for all time for what they're doing against him. We cannot profane these things. Now, as we move into the next section, point number two in your notes is a good reputation endures and can point to God. A good reputation endures and can point to God. Now, we, we are introduced to a new character. The queen comes in. It's probably the queen mother um, because Belshazzar has already been said to be with his wife and his wives and his concubines are already in the party. So the queen mother, who immediately we see is a wise woman for not being in the party, <laughs> enters because she's heard. Maybe a servant has run out. Maybe she's heard the screams. But she comes in. And I want you to notice the queen mother. By the way, this is really um, a theme in Middle Eastern uh, literature that the queen mother was an authoritative person. She's very respected for her position, uh, often um, understood as a wise woman. This is likely Nitocris, uh, a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and she comes into the room, and notice the difference between the way that she conducts herself and the words that she says in comparison to Belshazzar. Verse 10. She comes in, she says, Oh, king, live forever. Which, if you've read the rest of the chapter, is kind of ironic and slightly hilarious. Okay? Oh, king, live forever. She's respectful-ish. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. I read that as wimp. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't let your color change, king. Right? Like, act like a king. Okay? There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And then proceeds to say all these beautiful, wonderful, great things about Daniel, including that he's, understa he's understanding to interpret dreams. He explained riddles and solved problems. Who is this man? It's Daniel, whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, named Belteshazzar. Their names are so similar. So interesting. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Basically, the queen mother comes in, takes care of the situation, owns it, and makes things move. Belshazzar is too freaked out to do anything, but the queen mother, in her wisdom, calls in Daniel. Now, Daniel's reputation precedes him. Daniel's reputation is decades old this time. He's been in Babylon for 60-ish years. He's an old man. Has he been demoted? Um, did the king really not know about him? Did he not like him and kind of shoved him away and put him in social security in another part of the palace? We don't know, but Daniel's not there at the party either. Smart guy. Daniel's reputation 
precedes him. Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Do you believe that? How important is your reputation and your name? And is it more important than your wealth? Because at times, we can compromise our name and our reputation in order to get more wealth, more access, more power. A good name is to be chosen. Make that decision now. By the way, young people, junior hires, high schoolers, college students, Daniel is a teenager at the beginning of this book. Notice, notice the line of his life. As a teenager, he makes the right decisions to stand for God when it matters, and his life shows a consistency over it. Until here we get to the end, next week we get to the end, and he's still faithful. Don't ever believe the lie that you'll get faithful when you get older. It must start now. Save yourself. Like, remember, people be like, you learn, learn from your mistakes. You know, learn from your mistakes. Learn from other people's mistakes. <laughs> right? Like, don't be like Belshazzar. But be like, that was stupid. I don't want to be like that person. Don't tell them that, right? But like, take notes. Okay? Right? Um, unless they're a really good friend and you need to tell them that it's stupid and they need to stop, then you can do that. Okay? But right, learn from other people and, and, and get this reputation, this name that also points to God. What did she know about Daniel? In her, in her pagan confusion, she knows there's something different about him. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. He has a reputation. May we be people in our culture, in our workplace, that have a reputation for the Holy Spirit in our lives. That something is different, something is wise, something is compassionate about us. Point number three, learning from history and from other people should lead to humility. Learning from history and from other people should lead to humility. The story of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 is all about pride. It's specifically labeled in the story. Humility is the outcome that is desired. So we want to learn from history and from other people. And that should lead to humility. Daniel's brought in before the king. He comes in, and I think the king insults him. First thing he says is, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. How does he recognize Daniel? First thing he says, you're a Jew, and you don't live in your homeland. The implication is, because my granddaddy defeated you and brought you over here. He completely ignores, at first, the queen mother's response that this man can save your hide tonight. But instead, we'd rather have racial slurs and feel superior. That's what the king does. Shows us his immaturity again. Then he says, I have heard, which I think, you see that, you said, why has he heard of this? Why doesn't he know this? Why isn't Daniel in the room making decisions? Why isn't he in the situation room? Why has he been put out? Why is this like Rehoboam, son of Solomon, who says, ah, I'm not going to listen to the old wise guys. I'm going I'm to listen to all the guys I grew up with because we're smart. I've heard all these things. All my guys can't read it. They can't interpret it. But I've heard you can. So if you do, and he repeats the, the reward, the gift. In case you hadn't heard, here's what you get if you do this right. Now, Daniel then speaks. And I love what Daniel says. Now, we've noticed Daniel's respect for authority. We've noted Daniel's way of disagreeing in an agreeable way. Chapter 1, he looked for a creative way to still obey. Um, in Chapter uh, 3, we saw his friends, even though they disagreed and wouldn't go through what the king said, they did not mock him or disparage him or call him names. They still submitted to him while submitting to God. This sounds a little bit different. And I think it's a, an older, wiser man dealing with a young, foolish man. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Keep your stuff. Okay? Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless... I will read the writing. This is, the, I will read it. These guys can't. I'll read it and I'll give you the interpretation. Now, notice Daniel is not arrogant. Daniel is confident. And sometimes it's hard to notice the difference between that, right? Some of you are very confident people. Have you ever been told that you come across as more than confident and maybe a little arrogant? This is the fine line. Daniel is confident in his God. He knows that the Lord will, will help him to do this. And he doesn't need to be bribed. He doesn't need to be bought. 
He's a prophet. You don't pay me to do this. This is what I do. Give it to somebody else. I'll tell you what it means. And what he does is not tell him what it means. He gives him a history lesson. <laughs> you can see, Belshazzar going, okay, here we go. Right? Didn't pay attention in history class. Daniel repeats basically chapter 4. He says, remember Nebuchadnezzar's story? Remember cow stuff, you know, hair, eating the, eating the grass? Not a good look for the king. Remember that happened? Okay. When did that stop? Look at the end of verse 21. Here's the point, Belshazzar. Until Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Humble yourself. Realize you're not it. And you, now he, I don't know if he pointed, you, his son, Belshazzar, uses his name. (laughs) He didn't say, O king, live forever. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. That's the indictment. You knew this. Belshazzar knew it, and he ignored it. He willfully put it out of his mind and did not learn the lesson that he should have from Nebuchadnezzar. But what have you done instead? You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Uh Uh-oh. And the vessels of his house, now the connection is made to bringing out the vessels, have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. That is not the purpose that they were made for. And not only that, while drinking wine from those vessels, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, commentary from Daniel, which do not see or hear or know. Daniel exposes the foolishness. These are incapable gods. They're blind. They're deaf. They're dumb. The Old Testament frequently speaks about the gods of the nations like this. Deuteronomy 4.28, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, Isaiah 44. All of these passages speak about the, the, the dumbness, the deafness, the inaction of false gods. If you had to build it, why would you worship it? We worship what builds us, not what we build. That's the way that it should be. These gods were shaped somewhere in a, a, a factory, in a, a special room, in a place where the gods were um, built and made. Somebody carried the god or put it on a wagon across town and set it up in the palace. What kind of god is that? What does Yahweh, the God of Israel, do? Build me a house. I'll come into it when you're done. They build them a, a, a tent, and then God comes down in such a way that everyone gets out of the tent because they're freaked out because a real God has arrived. By the way, a God they can't see, and a God they haven't made stone idols out of. This is the God who rules the heavens and the earth, who made the heavens and the earth, who made the gold and silver, the bronze, the iron, the wood, and the stone. This is the God who sees, who hears, who knows. And then Daniel says, but the God in whose hand is your breath. You think you get another breath, king, without God giving it to you? Think again. The God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. (laughs) Who comes into the king's palace and tells him this kind of stuff? Someone who knows his stuff. I want you to notice, Belshazzar knew what he should have known. He knew enough to not repeat the mistake, and he did it anyway. Have you done that? Have I done that? I know this is wrong. I've done it before. I've seen it done before. I don't care. It feels good. I'm doing it. Which is really saying, God, I know you made the universe to work this way, but I think I can do it better. I can also do it better than this person, this person, this person, this person, this person that I've seen it not work out well for. That's pride. That's arrogance. That is spitting in the face of God and saying, I don't care. Having the right information and facts is not enough. 
It's not enough. You cannot guarantee right actions just by storing facts in your head. Now, did Belshazzar actually have the letter of Nebuchadnezzar in his possession so that he actually had read it? That would be even more damning. But I know something Belshazzar did not know, that Daniel probably did. Daniel probably had heard of and knew of Jeremiah's writings. We actually know of this later on in the book of Daniel. But Jeremiah, in one of his writings, and we can find this in Jeremiah 27, 5-7, said this, wrote this. This is God speaking. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. This was prophetic. I'm pretty sure Belshazzar didn't know this. I wonder if Daniel did. But God had already spoken and said, Nebuchadnezzar gets his time, his sons, and his grandsons. And then we're going to move on from the gold head to the silver chest and arms. Right? God is, God is placing who he wants when he wants. There's no negotiation. This is how it's going to be. Daniel rejects the gifts says, keep them, tells him the history, explains to him what he has done, and then says, this is your judgment. It's in God's hands. What was he supposed to do when he came into the room? (laughs) Oh yeah, the writing on the wall. Okay, we'll get there. Point number four, God's word is true, accurate, and powerful. God's word is true, accurate, and powerful. It is after all of this that Daniel then speaks to what's on the wall. Apparently they can, they can see it. It's there still. And they can, they can read it. But no one can actually read it and figure it out. Now, there, there may be um, a few reasons why this is the case. Um, this is written in Aramaic. And Aramaic doesn't have vowels. Okay, can we put that picture up, uh, Jeremiah? Um, this is a, an, a, an attempt to recreate uh, what the words are in Aramaic. Um, those are just consonants, okay? So imagine a language that has no vowels. You have to have the vowels supplied. How do you know if it's an I or an E or an ah or an O? Oh? Would that change the meaning of a word, perhaps? Very well might change the meaning. Now, there's another option that some scholars think. Go to the next one. They think it also might have been written vertically instead of horizontally, which was not uncommon um, for codes and anagrams and different ways of putting things. So it could have actually been um, vertical instead of horizontal. We don't know for sure, but whatever the case is, if you don't know the vowels, you don't know necessarily how to pronounce what is being said. Okay? Um, And so there's different ways that it could have come out. It could have come out and meant different things depending on how they were saying it. Now, Daniel comes in and says that God, from his presence, sent his hand to write on the wall. And I'm going to tell you what it says. In verse 25, this is what it says. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Now, those are all Aramaic words for, um, for currency, for weighing, for scales. They didn't, uh, coins were just coming into being in the ancient Near East, and so there probably wasn't a lot of usage of coins. What happened was, is you weighed precious metals. Okay, that's, that's, how you, that's how you did it. So scales were super important to see how much something cost or how much you could trade for something. And all of these words are related to those things. So mene is, is a, a, a weight. It means a numbered. It's a mina. Um, we see that in, in the scriptures, that a mina is, is, a, is a type of currency. Okay? A mina was a Babylonian weight or currency equivalent to 60 shekels. And mene sounds like the Aramaic word for numbered. Tekel in Aramaic, is shekel in Hebrew, okay? And it is also a weight, okay? And it, and it means weighed, okay? And then um, parsin or perez, we'll see that, that one of those is um, singular, one of those is plural, is like a half mina because it means divided. So you take the, the mina and you divide it and you get another weight. All of these are weights. All of these are nouns. So when he reads this, 
they're nouns. They're not, they're not a sentence, okay? They're just words placed. This is another reason why they couldn't interpret it, because they didn't know what to do with the words, okay? It was just like throwing uh, up on uh, the wall, um, scale, <laughs> weight, buffalo. You know, like, this is, what, 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 is, what does that mean? What do, what do we do with that? There's no verbs. There's no object. We don't know what to do with any of these, these words, okay? So, um, the, when, when Daniel reads it, God supernaturally gives him the interpretation of what it means. And he says in verse 26, Mene, God has numbered the days. Now what Daniel does is he takes the noun and he makes it a verb. The noun, Mene, he now says, it means a weight, and he says it means weighed. Do you see that, that that means? Okay, he, he's, he's using the noun and he's verbing it, okay, to make it mean something. Mene, God has numbered the days of the, your kingdom and brought it to an end. That's not good news. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You're not enough. You don't measure up. Perez, which is different than parsing, okay, but it's the same word. One is singular, one is um, plural. Perez, your kingdom is divided. It meant dividing. Remember that? Dividing up. And it also sounds like the same word for Persian. And he says, your kingdom is going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel comes in and deciphers these words and makes them into a message so that they could understand what was said. This is bad, bad news. Belshazzar knew it was bad news. That's why he reacted the way that he did. It wasn't just freaking out that there was a hand writing, but he knew that it was an omen, right? He knew this, there's an army outside we're having a party. I just asked to bring in another nation's, another god's vessels, and there's a hand writing on the wall. He, he's assuming the hand is not like, hey, how's it going, Belshazzar? Great job, dude. He's not assuming that at all. He's assuming this, this is probably not going to be good. And when Daniel comes in and gives it to him, it's not good. But because he's a king, this is where it's really weird. Because he's a king, because he has spoken, because he's an authoritative leader, and because of the culture, he can't just drop it. So what does he do? Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so there's debate about why did Daniel accept this? I don't think he had a choice. Right? And like, nah, king. I mean, he already told the king off, so like, we're kind of done with that. And so he just, I think, accepts um, this promotion along with the pretty things that he gets, which is actually very interesting because um, as we're going to find out, when the when the Persians come in and overthrow the Babylonians, in the next chapter, the Babylonians are gone, the Persians are there, and who's still in a position of authority? Daniel, who just got promoted. <laughs> like, the night of, okay? This is uh, very interesting, how God rewards Daniel, though Daniel was not looking for it. Daniel said, keep it. I don't need it. I don't want it. He gets it anyway, okay? And then verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Now, historically, there's a good amount of evidence to support the fact that it's October, the Euphrates River is at its lowest, and that Cyrus and his generals diverted the river Euphrates into a plain temporarily, walked onto the riverbed, went under a gate, and got into the city, the impregnable city, the titanic city, and there's no fight. They just walk in, the army walks in, surrender, okay? Um, You're drunk anyway, right? Not going to make good decisions here. And there's no fight, and the Persians come in. Belshazzar is put to death. Verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The golden head of Babylon slash Nebuchadnezzar has fallen. Within his own lifetime, Daniel personally sees his vision, the vision of the king come true. The vision he interpreted, he sees it right in front of his eyes coming true. What an amazing story. Now, you notice, I supplied you that historical background. The Bible does not see fit to include that. Now, it's nice to know. It's, it's cool to see how God has worked. But the, the Bible is, is concerned about telling you this. Belshazzar blasphemed God. Belshazzar paid for it. Don't repeat. Bel- <laughs> don't be like Belshazzar. <laughs> okay? Don't do that. Now, we should not be surprised at the fall of Babylon. Because in Isaiah 13, Isaiah predicted Babylon's fall 150 years before. 
in Isaiah 44 and 45, a, a ruler named Cyrus is predicted. Isaiah 47 predicts Babylon's downfall. And Jeremiah 51 spends 64 verses of poetry dedicated to the utter destruction of Babylon. This is going to happen because the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. Why is Kim Jong-un in power? What about President Emmanuel Macron? What about Benjamin Netanyahu or Vladimir Putin? How about Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador? How about President Trump? What about Governor Newsom or Mayor Steve Jones of Garden Grove, California? Great little city. The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. That's why. So we look at Belshazzar and we see the, the rich fool in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12. I have more than I need. I'll build another house. I'm good to go. Jesus says, you fool. This night, this very night, your life will be required of you. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions or how much wine is flowing at his parties or what kind of vessels he can bring out. Jesus ends that parable by advising us to resist laying up treasure for ourselves, but rather to be rich toward God. What God has given, give back as much as you can. Our possessions, our income, all our stuff should be pointed in a Godward direction. Phil's not here today, so I can talk about this. One time I opened my car door in the back, and Phil had just gotten his new leaf. And I opened my door of my beautiful 1998 Toyota Corolla, which I really take great care of. And I hit his car with my door. It was like silver and grayish, and it was really nice. And I was like, oh, no. I don't care if that happens to my car, but I did to his. I told Phil, and the first word out of Phil's mouth was, it's just a car. It's not his baby. It's just a car. I went over there, right? Tell him about it, buffing it out, right? But it's just a car. Our stuff is just our stuff. Our souls we must make an account of before the Most High God. In this, we see that wisdom comes from knowledge of God and His ways. This can only be sustained and replenished. Listen, if you won Bible baseball in fourth grade, fantastic. That will not last you into the next week. It certainly won't last you into your 30s. I, I don't know more than this, but I'm assuming 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right? It's not going to last you. You must replenish you must be renewed in your mind by regular contact and immersion in the words of God found only in the Bible. Village, <laughs> the primary fountain we must drink from is the Bible. The primary one. It is pure water. It is way, way more important to over and over again go back to the Bible so that when you watch Fox News and CNN and visit the Daily Caller and random Facebook weirdos and Twitter personalities and your favorite celebrities speaking about something they have no right to speak about, you will always, 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 always measure those words against God's word. But you can't do that if you don't know God's word. How many of you have forgotten Bible verses you've memorized? How many of you have forgotten, you've read something this year and you go, I don't even remember that being in the Bible. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> yeah, that, what, where was that? Where was that when I was reading that a few years ago? Okay, so that just tells me like you don't know it well enough, right? Like we just don't know it well enough. It's a big book. Get in it and apply it to your life. Village, there's an election in 37 days. There's a Supreme Court seat open. I'm not sure if you noticed, but there's a global pandemic kind of doing some stuff to our lives. Some of you have cancer. Some of us won't be here next year. Guess what? The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And one day soon, the one he sets over that kingdom will be his beloved son in whom he is well pleased, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation says the kingdom will one day be given to the Christ, the Messiah, and he will rule. He will judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. So resolve not to be like Belshazzar, of whom Daniel said he had not honored the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. Rather, like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, ask what we must do to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Jesus 
reigns. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, what a, a buoy for our sinking souls sometimes to know that you place whom you want in positions of power for your purposes, purposes that we are very, very much not voting on, that we don't have control over. I do thank you, Lord, that in America we do have a voice, we do have a vote, we do have the rights that we have. Lord, help us to use those not to further America, but to further your kingdom so that we might use our rights to advocate for others that we might use the responsibilities and privileges that you've given to us to spread the gospel around the world to countries that don't have the freedoms that we do. Help us not to keep it to ourselves that the light would not be hidden under a bushel. Lord, we are worried <laughs> and nervous. Someone drove through a crowd at a protest in your Belinda yesterday, Lord. Your Belinda. We are concerned. We love our country. God, we pray that we would take it to heart what Paul told the Philippians, that we would not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let a request be made known to you. And Lord, we request of you peace. God, give wisdom to our leaders, those we agree with, those we don't agree with, those we like, those we don't like, those we follow, those we don't follow. Give them wisdom. Give us wisdom as we vote. Lord, and as we go to separate rooms now to pray that we would, that we would be most concerned about the kingdom that will never end. God, help us to be like Daniel. To be wise and confident to be submissive, to be creative, to be calm in a world that is far from those things. In Jesus' name, amen.